Last week, we began our sermon by asking the question, and you may remember, why did the Lord Jesus Christ come in the flesh of man? Why did the Son of God become incarnate in the flesh of man? The answer that we gave was summed up in what is known as the covenant of works. The covenant of works. God imposed a divine covenant with his image bearer, Adam, Adam stood as our our covenant head, our covenant head or representative of all humanity. We may speak more about that. So when Adam fell, all men fell. When Adam sinned and broke the covenant with God, all of humanity sinned and broke covenant with God. Romans 5:12 says, "Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 3.23, for all have, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Adam broke covenant with God. And every other covenant, here's our answer to why, every other covenant after that, every other work of man after that was unable to repair what Adam destroyed in the garden. Why did the Lord Jesus Christ come? Because every other covenant thereafter, every other good deed thereafter, was unable to repair what Adam broke and lost in the Garden of Eden. Circumcision would not save a man. The blood of bulls and goats and lambs would not save a man. All of the righteous deeds of men, as the Bible says in the book of Isaiah, are as filthy rags before God. Adam broke covenant. Adam broke the covenant of works. We learned last week that this doctrine is is not an insignificant doctrine. It's not a doctrine that doesn't matter. C.H. Spurgeon said, the doctrine of the covenant lies at the root of all true theology. It has been said that he who well understands the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace is a master of divinity. Let me just pause for a moment. I said to the elders in our, our office, We would not even be having this discussion this morning. We would not even need to teach on the covenant of works if we were in the 19th, early 19th century and before. It is not until the late 19th century, 20th century and the 21st century that there is a need now to proclaim from Scripture the covenant of works. It was already assumed before that. It was already widely accepted before that. It is only recently that the covenant of works has been denied. Spurgeon goes on to say, I am persuaded that most of the mistakes that which which men make concerning doctrines of Scripture are based upon fundamental errors with regard to the covenant of law and grace or the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Brothers and sisters, this is no insignificant doctrine, this covenant of works. And may I encourage you as we embark upon our teaching this morning, there may be a temptation for some to say, This covenant of works, all of of these things that you're teaching, how does that help me? What does that have to do with my marriage? What does that have to do with my parenting? How is this going to help me in my job on a day-to-day basis? What am I to do with these things? Does this doctrine matter? And do these doctrines even matter? Brothers and sisters, dear ones, as a believer, 
One of your primary responsibilities in this world is to be an evangelist. One of your primary responsibilities in this world is to share the gospel. And if you understand this well, then you, brothers and sisters, will be a better evangelist to your wife, a better evangelist to your children, a better evangelist on your job. How does this help you? It helps you to be light and salt in this world by knowing the gospel. He who knows the gospel well is a great evangelist. So learn these doctrines. Don't place them off to the side and say, that's for someone else. No, they're for you so that you can share the gospel. So know them well. Know them well. These doctrines will help you see why the world continues to pursue the desires of the flesh. Why? Because they are fallen in Adam. This world will help you to see where is the remedy. Where is the hope? It is found in Christ, the second Adam. So does this matter? Do these things matter? Oh, they matter. They are a matter of life and death. Are you with me? Amen. So I say again, amen. Not an insignificant doctrine. He who understands the covenant of works, he who understands the covenant of grace, as Spurgeon says, is a master of divinity. A master of divinity. Or he who understands this gets the gospel right. Amen. We learned last week that, the God, that, God command, that God's commands are his law. God gave Adam commands <clears throat> that fell under his priestly responsibilities in the garden temple. Adam was commanded, do not eat of this tree. If you eat of this tree, you will die. Therefore, there was a negative aspect and also a positive aspect to the command that God gave Adam, which was Adam's law or law for Adam. Negative. You are not allowed to eat of this tree. If you eat, you die. Positive. Obey. And if you obey, you will live. That is the, the law. This law has a positive and a negative aspect to it. And it is a, as we talked about last week, it is a positive law. It was an added law that God gave to Adam. There was nothing evil or wrong about the tree in and of itself. But it became sinful to partake of the tree once God commanded, thou shall not eat from this tree. Amen. Adam was obligated by his creator to live in obedience to the command of God. That command became a law, a law that Adam was to live by. Adam's obedience or disobedience to this command would be the deciding factor of life or death for Adam. We also learned that through the law... God establishes a covenant. If you remember from last week, a covenant is a commitment with divine sanctions. God sets the terms of the commitment. God is the one who decides or determines what will or will not happen dependent upon, dependent upon one's obedience or disobedience. God has given divine sanctions. God as a sovereign ruler determines what the punishment will be upon the violation of the covenant. God imposes this covenant and we learn that we must not see this imposition, God imposing the covenant. We must not see this as a negative thing. It was a positive thing. When God imposes a covenant, it is always for the betterment, for the improvement of the person that he is making the covenant with. Amen? The person that, that God is covenanting with is always receiving a promise of something better if he obeys. Are you with me? The person who is receiving the covenant who God is covenanting with is always receiving a promise of something better 
should they fulfill their part of the deal? What was God promising Adam? Life, glory, something that Adam fell short of, something that Adam did not achieve. But, as we said last week, God didn't have to promise Adam anything. He was under no obligation to, to come in any kind of agreement or, uh, or uh, commitment with Adam. This was by the sovereign grace and mercy of God to give Adam any kind of promise of, of, of anything, to even create Adam in general. This was the mercy of God. God promised, if you obey, you will enter into an eternal rest, a glory. And in that glory, there you will not be able to sin. Adam was created in a mutable or changeable state. He was able to sin, able not to sin. God promised if you obey, you will enter into a rest where you will not be able to sin. Amen. It was a promise of something better if he earned it or if he had worked for it. Hence, the covenant of works. We learned that if God establishes a covenant based upon law, then our response to the to to that law will be obedience. We must obey. It's a work. But if God establishes a covenant based upon promises, then our response is to receive covenant of grace. Amen. Let me say uh, the same thing in another way. When God imposes a law, man pledges obedience and God threatens the man who must obey. It is therefore a covenant of works. Man must keep the law in order to earn the reward. It's a formal covenant of works. All right. Similarly, when God introduces a promise and divine sanctions are upon the one who made the promise, namely God, it's a covenant of grace. Here's the gift. Receive it. All you need to do is receive it. If I don't give it to you, then the sanction is on me. All you need to do is receive it. That's grace. Amen. And we concluded last week's sermon with a few valid questions. And I say they are valid. And here's one of them. <clears throat> How is there a covenant in the garden when the word covenant is not found anywhere in the book of Genesis chapters one through three? Do you, do you read the Bible that way? Do you say, hey, if the word's not there, then it can't be there. John MacArthur does. Oh, oh sorry. Um, why is this called a covenant of works? I don't like that word works. What do you mean works? I thought we were saved by grace, not works. And there are a number of other valid questions that I think we will be able to answer some of them this morning, not all of them. This morning, we are going to embark on answering some of those questions. But I do want to say, I believe we gave sufficient evidence for the covenant of works last week. But we will give five considerations this morning, five considerations. So I will say, consider this, consider this, and they will be our evidences for the covenant of works. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter two and verse number eight. Genesis two and verse number eight. <coughs> This is God's holy word. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out 
of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree that is in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and, of good and evil. Verse 15. Uh, go to 16, actually. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is God's holy inspired word. Uh, please be seated. So let's begin with our first consideration. These are evidences for the covenant of works, and these are just a few. There are plenty more. And if you have any desire to read more into this, I can give you a number of books that you can point to. Number one, consider why this is called a covenant of works from the Apostle Paul. Consider why this is called the covenant of works from the Apostle Paul. Turn with me to the book of Romans, please. The book of Romans, Romans chapter five. Last week, we laid out the elements of a covenant. We learned that a covenant is a divine commitment with sanctions. The Lord imposed this covenant upon his creation, Adam, and gave him a command which became law. This law was to govern the way Adam lived in the garden. The command carried with it a threat of death and a promise of life. But why is this covenant called a covenant of works? That's a big word, works. This, seemed to be, this seems to be a word that people often trip over, those who oppose this doctrine of the covenant of works. Now, listen very closely, okay? We rely heavily <clears throat> on subsequent, subsequent revelation or later revelation especially the Apostle Paul and his infallible reflection on earlier revelation for this doctrine. So in trying to understand what was going on in the garden, there is at least one of many, but one who speaks a lot about this, this doctrine or what was going on in the garden, and his name is Adam. I mean, Adam, Paul. Paul tells us a lot about what was going on with Adam. Are you, in this, are you with me? Yeah. Now, was Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit to write? Yes. Therefore, is what he writes infallible or is it flawed? Infallible. Paul is, is an infallible writer. And if he's an infallible writer, then he's also an infallible interpreter. Are you with me? He's able to look back and perfectly, because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, perfectly interpret what was going on back there? Are you with me? So then what did he say in reflecting upon Adam and his work in the garden? Did he say anything? And, and, and if, if he did say anything, is it reliable? Well, we've already said yes. It's infallible. He's also an infallible interpreter. We are not infallible interpreters, but he is. And he says in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, For as by one man's obedience, the many may, were made, disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. What's a legitimate synonym or another word for work? Obedience. Obedience. Another word for work 
or another word for obedience is work. And it's a good word because it contrasts perfectly with another great word, grace. Are you with me? Romans 5, 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. You see that contrast there? Reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Adam's disobedience brought death. Adam did not complete the work that was given to him. He transgressed the command. He broke covenant with God and brought death to all as our federal head or as our representative. Why are all men sinners? Look at me for a second. Why are all men sinners? Ask, ask believers when you speak to them, why are you a sinner? And if they begin to sound like, uh, if they begin to sound like Chunk from the Goonies, in second grade, in third grade, you remember that? Then they miss the point. You are not a sinner because a lie that you told in kindergarten. You are a sinner first and foremost because of Adam's fall in the garden. Yes, all men have sinned. All men have sinned personally. All men have sinned truly. But their, their sin began in their mother's womb. That's when they were a sinner because of the sin of Adam. David said that we were brought forth in iniquity. Uh, some of you who are holding babies or have babies in the back, they're sinners. But they've never done anything wrong. Adam stood as their representative. And when he fell, all fell. All have fallen sort of the glory of God. All men, all men are sinners. So then the covenant is called the covenant of works because God commanded Adam to work or to obey. And work is an appropriate synonym for obedience. Moving on. Number two, consider the prophet Moses. Did you know that Moses was a prophet? Consider the prophet Moses. Again, when you read the Bible, it is important for us to understand the relationship between God's acts and Holy Scripture. Meaning this, the writers of the Holy Scripture, they, they don't just record the acts of God. They interpret the acts of God. And they apply them in their own words. So when you see Paul writing about Adam, Paul's not just recording the acts of God. He is interpreting the acts of God all the way back in the book of Genesis. But so does Moses. And so does every other writer of Holy Scripture. They don't just record the acts of God. They interpret them for us. They are doing what Isaiah has told his class. They're doing interbiblical exegesis. They are taking a scripture here and saying, this is what that meant there. They're taking a scripture there and saying, this is what that means here. All throughout scripture. And, and guess what, brothers and sisters? They are doing so infallibly. Perfectly. They, as, as inspired writers of the Holy Spirit, are perfectly interpreting God's word for you. It is God's word on God's word. Are you with me? And we see this, this kind of subtle work of theology in the very beginning of the book of Genesis. And it can easily go past our eyes if we're not paying careful attention. Careful attention to what? Let's go to the book of Genesis chapter 1. In the book of Genesis chapter 1, you will notice that Moses identifies God in the first chapter of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. 
In the beginning, who? God created the heavens and the earth. Did you see it? See what? Moses identifies God as Elohim. Elohim. And we see the name of God by itself. Elohim. In the verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, etc., etc., etc. So what's the big deal? Now go to the second chapter. Moses is the, the writer of the book of Genesis. Moses reflecting back on the creation account. Moses goes to the second chapter of the book of Genesis and, and go to verse 4. How is God identified there? Lord God. Is the word Lord capitalized? Yes, it is. Moses uses a different name for God. It is a name that we've been saying over the past few weeks, Yahweh Elohim. Pastor John just spoke about this this past Wednesday. It is the, the covenant name of the Lord. Covenant name of the Lord. So Moses goes in chapter 1 from a generic or general name of the Lord, Elohim, to the second chapter, as man is created and placed in the garden, to a covenantal name of the Lord, Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh Elohim. You'll see that in verse 4, 5, 7, 8, 9, 16, on and on. It's Elohim. L-O-R-D in all caps. It is the covenant name of the Lord. It's the name that God uses when he covenants with his people. Moses, another infallible writer of God, goes from describing creation in general, the apex of creation, man, made in the image of God in chapter 1, and then shifts. There's a shift there. There's a change there in language to man's covenantal commission. And responsibility to God in chapter 2. Moses goes from creation of man, male and female, to the Edenic vocation of Adam. And the use of Yahweh here indicates a covenantal act of God toward Adam. God is covenanting with Adam. What can we conclude from the writings of Moses at this point? We, we can conclude this. We conclude that the covenant, that covenant and Adam's calling or vocation in the garden are connected covenant and adam's uh, vocation in the garden are connected or they go hand in hand we conclude that adam was not just placed in the garden to enjoy it however he wanted to enjoy it it's not just hey go play in the sandbox do it do with it as you will adam's commission in the garden was connected to a covenant he had a specific task or work to accomplish as what as part of a covenant, as part of a commitment or agreement between him and God. We may say, big deal. But for those who are first reading this, it was a big deal. Who were the first persons to read or hear this? The children of Israel. And what was going on with them? God was covenanting with them. God was calling them his son. As Adam, as the book of Luke says, was God's son. And they could look at the promises of God and the covenant between God and Adam, Adam and know that God means business. God will do what he says. And he is also covenanting with us. And he will do what he says. They understood the fall of man and why they were in the condition that they were in. There was so much that they understood just by reading the Genesis account of God and Adam. They were in covenant with God. <clears throat> 
there is a shift in language from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2. And it carries with it theological and covenantal implications. Theological and covenantal implications. God imposed a covenant on his image bearer. He imposed a formal covenant of works that was revealed through an added law, a positive law in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Are you with me? Yes? The context was the garden temple. The participant was the garden priest. Third, let's consider the prophet Isaiah. So we have considered essentially the apostle prophet Moses, the prophet or Paul, the prophet Moses, and now the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 24. Go to Isaiah chapter 24 if you would. Isaiah 24. We are are setting forth evidence for the covenant of works. Isaiah 24, verse 5. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. You see that? The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Hmm. Therefore, a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Isaiah, another inspired writer. And if he's inspired, that means that his interpretation is what? Infallible. It is perfect. And he is reflecting on what? The condition of mankind. Listen, look at me for a second. Is he only doing that? Is he only just saying, gosh, you know, this earth and everybody in it, they are jacked up. This earth is a mess. Is that all he's doing? No, that's not all he's doing. The prophet is pointing to the source of our corruption. He is he's pinpointing the source of our depravity. Go back to that verse again. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. Another, uh, I think the the Nasby says the earth is polluted by its inhabitants who are the inhabitants of the earth you and i yeah don't look around you and i we are the inhabitants of the earth we have polluted the earth isaiah says we are the pollutants of the earth for we have transgressed the laws violated the statutes and broken the everlasting covenant therefore a curse devours earth and its inhabitants And its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. The inhabitants are you and I. We have polluted the earth. Why? Because we have transgressed laws. We have violated commands. And the prophet says something very interesting. They have broken the everlasting covenant. What everlasting covenant? What everlasting covenant have we broken? Uh, E.J. Young, in his commentary on Isaiah, said, It must be noticed, however... That those who have frustrated the eternal covenant, listen close, are not merely the Jews. Did you hear that? Those who have broken this everlasting covenant, they're not, it's not just talking about the Jews. Isaiah is not just speaking about Jews, but the world in general. The frustrating of the covenant is something that is universal. For this reason, we may adopt the position that the eternal covenant here spoken of designates the fact that god has given his law and ordinances to adam and in adam to all mankind to adam all mankind adam was given a command when adam fell we all fell 
for all mankind to be set under such a covenant, it must be the same covenant that God made with Adam as the father of all humanity. What did Paul say? As in one man, all die. Well, how do we die in one man if we were not all in that same covenant with that same man? Are you with me? Adam was our representative. He stood for all mankind. That's not fair. It's not fair that Adam fell so I get to fall with him. Would you like that if your brother or sister living in your home? I don't know if any of you were like that. We weren't. But if they did something wrong, so everybody gets a spanking. I didn't do anything wrong, right? Is my sister in here? She's not. Okay, I was going to tell a story about her, but I won't. Okay, I will. One time, my dad, uh, he had a secret stash of his cookies. And we love sweets in our family. But someone had ate his cookies. He went through every single person in our house interrogating them. Who ate my cookies? I did not eat the cookies. My older brother, I'm assuming he probably did so. My sister, I have a good reason to believe that she probably did so as well. My mom, probably not, but she may have taken a nibble. I didn't eat any of those cookies because I knew better. My father came in and said to my sister, everyone has said they didn't eat it, so it's one of you two. If one of you don't tell me, you're both going to get a spanking. So I took the spanking for my sister. And as soon as you shut the door, I said, I did not eat those cookies. I don't know what that story has to do with anything, but one man sinned and all suffered because of it. Now, we may say that's not fair. I didn't do anything. But I'd like you to think about this for a moment. Think about the person that God chose to place in the garden to be our representative. Think about that. God chose a sinless person, able to sin able not to sin, placed him in the perfect context, the Garden of Eden, the first temple, the Garden Paradise. Was there any other, was there, was there another better context to be in? Was there another better representative to have? No. And, and beyond all that, it was God's sovereign choice. Do you think, you and I think that we could have chosen a better representative for us than God chose? So when someone says, that's not fair, so you know more than God. You have more wisdom than God. God chose Adam. I think God knew what he was doing. Yes, he did. And what did Adam do? Adam broke the covenant with God in the garden. And the effects of his covenant breaking have affected all of those who live on the earth. Every single one of us. We have all broken this covenant because we were all born in Adam. Again, Romans 5, 12. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. The prophet Isaiah, another imperfect interpreter of Scripture, assumes this to be the covenant, the covenant of works. And he applies that to all fallen humanity. Brothers and sisters, this is an example of, way, of making what is uh, explicit or making what is implicit in earlier text explicit in later text. Meaning what is implied there is not explicit. Ex- explicit until we see it in later scripture that explicitly says this is what was going on are you with me that makes sense number four consider the prophet isaiah or the prophet hosea so we've considered paul moses isaiah and now hosea hosea chapter six verse four hosea six verse four that may be hard for you to find it's in the minor prophets kind of the smaller books there 
You'll see it near Jonah and so forth. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 4. Listen to, to, to God's word on this. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away. Therefore, I have honed them by the prophets, or hemmed them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And then listen close to what God says. But like Adam, like who? Like Adam, they have transgressed the what? I'm sorry, we need to say that again. They have transgressed the what? The covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Did you see that? Israel is likened unto Adam. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. The meaning is that they have acted like Adam, the first man, whom I put in the garden, and he also transgressed my covenant. J.B. Fasco says, the most natural reading of this verse is the comparison between Adam and God. Adam's son, Adam God's son, and Israel God's son, who have both broken God's covenant. Richard Barcelos, they have transgressed the covenant, consists in this, that Israel is accused of a transgression which is only to be, to be compared to that of the first man created here, as there, a like transgression of the expressed will of God. B.B. Warfield. God in his goodness, great goodness, planted Adam in a paradise. But Adam violated the commandment which prohibited him, prohibited his eating of the tree of knowledge and thereby transgressed the covenant of his God. Loss of fellowship with God and expulsion from Eden with penal consequences that immediately act, that immediately followed. Israel, like Adam, had been settled by God in Palestine. The glory of all the lands. But ungrateful for God's great bounty and gracious gift, they broke covenant of their God. The condition of which, as is the case of the Adamic covenant, was obedience. Thus, the comparison projects, the shadow of, com of, coming, of a coming event when Israel would lead the land of promise. Adam was expelled. Who was also going to be expelled from the land of promise? Israel. Just like Adam. Both Adam and Israel broke a covenant imposed upon them by God. It may not say covenant in the, in the book of Genesis, but I tell you what, it says covenant in the book of Hosea. And is Hosea a, an infallible interpreter of what was going on in Genesis? Yes, he was. Yes, he is. Scripture tells us that Adam broke a covenant just like Israel broke a covenant. They both sinned and sinned against God. And there was indeed a covenant established by God. With Adam, his son. Finally, consider the two trees. This is probably our greatest evidence. Eh, they're all great evidences. This is the big one, though. Consider the two trees. What two trees? Genesis chapter 2. Go back there, please. Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 8. <clears throat> and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. 
For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So, in these verses, we are presented with two trees. Now, were there more trees in the garden than just the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life? Yes. But these two trees are distinct. They are distinct and they stand out in the garden. What was the function of these two trees? That's a question you should write down. What is the function of these two trees? The function of these two specific trees was this. They were to be a word from God in the visual form. The two trees were to be a word from God in the visual form. We understand visual forms. We understand signs, things that that signify something. Uh, Some of you may have played this game before. My wife and I used to play it for just a little while. It was called Logo Quiz. You ever seen that app, Logo Quiz? And on this app, there are a number of different logos that will come up. And it is your job to fill in the blank as what what is that logo? What does that stand for? The Golden Arches. The swoosh. The apple. Microsoft. Someone said apple. Microsoft. We understand symbols. We understand signs that, that point to a word, that point to something else. Now take that idea to the book of Genesis and to the scriptures. When God establishes a covenant, he establishes signs that are, listen, visual reminders of how people are to live. One of the ways that God does this is through so-called sacraments. What is a sacrament? It makes the promises of the covenant visible to the eyes of the people. What is this called? Is the Lord's Supper. It is a sacrament which points to a promise to God's covenant people. Are you with me? Think about the uh, think about. Thinking about signs. Think of the promise to Noah. What was the sign that God used to remind Noah of his word? Rainbow. Think about circumcision. It was a sign that God used for the Abrahamic people, that they were heirs of Abraham. Think about Passover. Another sign that people used, that blood over the doorpost, that fellowship meal that they had every Passover. All of these were signs that pointed to God's promises. They were reminders that what God has said, God will, will keep bring to pass. As they celebrated each of these things, they were visual reminders of God's promises and God's threats. So, when one sees the visual word or the sign of the covenant, they are reminded, again, of God's promises and God's threats of the covenant. Now, did God give Adam any sign? Any signs for Adam in the garden? Yeah, two signs, the sacramental trees. They were, they were not just trees in the garden. They were not just random trees to be random trees. They were signs. The, the presence of those trees were directly connected to the commands that God gave Adam. If Adam violates the commands, these trees were a visual testimony, a visual reminder that he would die. They were a visual reminder that if you eat of this tree, you will die. Adam knows that he cannot eat of the tree. And and the tree is a reminder that every time he looks at it, he knows if I eat of this, I will die. Why? Because God said so. It's a visual reminder of God's holy word. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a visual threat that should Adam disobey, he would die. Think of the name, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Does that mean that Adam did not know evil? 
or, or that he did not he was not aware of what was right and what was wrong. No, Adam being created in the image of God had God's law written on his heart. So he knew what was right and he knew what was wrong, but he had not yet experienced evil. So if Adam partook of the tree, he would know evil in an experiential way, meaning that he would have experienced the act of evil. He would have known what it was to disobey God personally, actively. He would have also known what it means to die. And that tree was a reminder. That tree was a reminder. He had ever only ever known perfect obedience. But should he partake of that tree, he would know actual death and actual disobedience. Adam was commissioned to keep the garden pure, but he failed. And if he did fail, which he did, God would remove him from the garden and that he would die. And the tree was a reminder of that. It was a sacramental tree. So if this tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a visual reminder of, of, of the threat of death of dis, upon disobedience... Where was the visual reminder of life? Because, listen, brothers and sisters, in the covenant, there needs to be both a threat of upon punishment of, of disobedience. And there needs to also be a promise to something better or just a, a reward for keeping your part of the covenant. So we have one aspect. Here's the threat of death. The tree is the visual reminder of that. Where is the promised reward sign? Huh? Huh? The tree of life. If, if this is a sign to death, then the tree of life is a sign to life, to reward. Obviously, it's the tree of life. For those who oppose this doctrine, because they, they say it can't be a covenant because there's no promise of life. What, is the, what in the world is the tree of life for? It's a promise to life. It's not just a decoration. It's a visual sign. Of the promise of life upon Adam's obedience. It is God's word made visible. Nehemiah Cox, one of our um, particular Baptist forefathers. The tree of life functioned as a sign and a pledge of that eternal life which Adam would have obtained by his own personal and perfect obedience to the law of God. If he continued in it. Or if he obeyed, the tree of life was a reminder that you will live. Are you with me? Life belonged to Adam if he obeyed God's law. And the rest of Scripture confirms this. In Genesis 3, 22 to 24, the tree of life is guarded. Why? So that man will not partake of the tree of life and live. Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Where is the tree of life? Brothers and sisters, look at me for a second. It's in the consummation. It's in the end times. It's, it's there at the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth. It is right there. And it is offered to those who have trusted, not in their own works, but in the work of Christ. It's there. The tree of life was a promise of life. It was eternal life in perfection. It was the end goal that hinged upon Adam's obedience. God made a covenant with Adam. He gave him laws in addition to his moral law that was written on his heart. God placed Adam under conditions of sanctions and threats. If he obeyed, he would live. If he disobeyed, he would die. And God gave Adam promises, promise of eternal life through that obedience. God made Eden Adam's kingdom and gave him the covenant of works as the law and rule of the land. 
within that covenant kingdom, God placed two trees that sum up visibly everything that was in the covenant with Adam. The two trees summed up who Adam was. He was a priest king. He must guard the two trees and protect the garden where he lived. The two trees summed up where Adam was, the temple sanctuary of God's presence. The two trees summed up what Adam was to do, obey and maintain the purity of the sanctuary. They summed up the threat of of disobedience, death, and they summed up the promise of obedience, eternal life. Brothers and sisters, everything is found in the sign of these two trees. They make all things visible to Adam. They put Adam under a, someone asked me about this earlier, they put him under a probationary period. We talked about this last week. It was a testing period. His obedience will be put to the test. And how did that testing of obedience turn out? When Adam was tested, how did he fare in that test? What was the outcome? Did he obey or disobey? We've been saying it over and over again. Adam broke the covenant. Adam disobeyed. Adam fell short of something that he was created to attain. Glory. Adam could have reached something greater than what he was initially created with, uh, than he was initially created in via his initial created state. He fell short of that better condition. Adam fell short of that better condition. It is the glory that Adam fell short of. It is the glory that the Lord Jesus Christ has secured for his elect. Amen. Adam fell short of this. The Lord Jesus Christ has secured that glory for his elect. When we trust in Christ, he does not bring us back to the garden and say, okay, now you're back in Adam's state. He takes it to somewhere, some, some place better than where Adam never attained in his obedience or in his failure. God does not take us back to the starting point and say, okay, now try again. That's a great gospel news that, that, that God would not take us and say, okay, let's see how you do now. But instead, when we trust in Christ... We attain the same glory that Christ has attained via Christ's perfect obedience and Christ's perfect work. So we are saved by works. The works of Christ. The perfect obedience of Christ. He has secured for his elect a better existence than that which Adam had via his initial created state. The Lord Jesus Christ does not make us like Adam. He makes us like himself. Glorified in Christ It is that glory which John Gill says is an everlasting glory, a happiness that has been prepared and promised for and to God's people that he has called in Christ. The Bible says in Luke 24, 26, was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Yes. And who does he bring with him? Hebrews says many sons, many sons to glory. Uh, I'll, I'll kind of close a little bit with this. Barcelos again. Adam failed to comply with the conditions of the covenant God imposed upon him and brought with that the ruin of the human race. He fell short of the glory of God, a permanent state of existence in God's special premise presence. He did not possess via his creation. But here is the good news. Another came. The last Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered, then entered into his glory, his at the resurrection, and who is the agent through whom many sons will be brought to glory. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ has purchased glory for those whom he has come to save. If you have trusted in Christ, then this gift of grace is yours. If you hear this today, God is holy, he is creator, and he is judge. 
He created men to glorify him, created men in his image to glorify him, to love him, to enjoy him, to obey him. God made a covenant with man. Man was to obey. And if he obeyed, he would enter into that eternal glory, that Sabbath rest. And he would bring all of humanity with him. But if he failed, he would plunge humanity into that failure with him. What did he do? Man fell and disobeyed. Man fell. He sinned against God, brought death upon all of humanity. Man was lost. Without a hope of saving himself from his sins, you cannot be good enough to save yourself. There is nothing that you can do right now, not not a deed that can be good enough to save yourself when you stand before God. But God, in his mercy and in his love, sent the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he lived in perfect obedience to the righteous law of God. He actively obeyed God, passively submitted to the death of a common sinner. He was crucified on the cross. And after three days, he rose from the grave just as he said he would. He suffered to satisfy the justice of God and his obedience unto death resulted in his exaltation and entrance into glory. And all who are his will enter into that same rest, into that same glory. If you trust in Christ alone, he calls you now to repent of your sins. Turn from your sins. Trust in Christ alone. There is no other way that you can be saved from the wrath of God except for trusting in Christ alone. His works will save you. Yours will not. The last Adam takes his seed. Those who trust in Adam, he takes them to a place that is separated from God. But the second Adam takes his seed to a place that Adam failed to take his. Adam takes his seed to death. Christ takes his seed to life. All men hang on the belts of these two men. You are either in Christ or you are either in Adam. Adam sinned, violated the covenant of works, fell short of the glory of God. The Lord Jesus Christ did not sin. He perfectly obeyed the stipulations of the covenant of works imposed on him and entered into the glory, the glory of his rest. And he goes as our forerunner. He goes before us. This, my brothers and sisters, is our evidence for the covenant of works. Let's stand.